Roman. Nice to see you again, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, fine. Thanks. Cool. So, so what are we talking about today? Yeah, let's get right into it. So last time we finished off on, um, we talked about discretionary versus algorithmic trading and a whole bunch of things came up, right? So just to recap, we were talking about scale and that as you grow your trading business, scale becomes uh, problematic if you're simply trading um, discretionary, right? So while both of them have their advantages, if you'd like to scale your trading strategy, then algorithmic trading almost becomes a necessity at some point, even if you are uh, getting into it on a, in a semi-automated basis. You're not automating the entire thing, but you are automating some parts of it that let you scale your effort, right? That's what we concluded on last time. I wanted to pick your brains today about um, risk, particularly because of your background uh, as somebody who uh, comes from a scientific background, uh, applying it to financial trading, but also someone who has monetized it outside of uh, Darwin X as uh, an EA seller, if I'm if I'm correct. Is that right? Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, I think also as an EA seller, I got a lot of feedback and um, also a good overview over the common mistakes which people make. For mm -hmm. example, at the start, I would say it's really important to first understand what leverage actually is uh -huh. because um, there's often a confusion. For example, um, some clients thought that if they trade one lot on one to 500 leverage, mm -hmm. it's more risky than trading one lot on one to 30 leverage. But mm -hmm. the risk only depends on the lot size and the leverage is just the like the ability to open higher lot sizes. Mm -hmm. So it's an, like the maximum risk you could take. But um, if you trade micro lots on one to 500 leverage, it's the same risk as if you trade a micro lot on any other leverage. Mm -hmm. So tell us a bit more then. Um, uh, I'd like to hear more uh, about how you've seen the subjects uh, of leverage, risk, and associated themes come up from your clients over time, common mistakes you've observed, uh, common trends in the way people approach risk in general. I mean, often people would ask me, for example, what's the maximum lot size they can um, trade with a certain leverage. But uh, for me personally, this is uh, actually the wrong question because um, I would always look at what is the maximum risk that I want to take. And then I would... Um, usually judged by the backtest for a 20-year backtest, and I would look where was the maximum drawdown. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to have a maximum 30% drawdown in the future, of course, you can never like um, sure. predict the future drawdown, but at least you can say it only happened once in the past, so it's um, the likelihood is hop hopefully not too, um, too great. And mm -hmm. um, then I would calculate the lot size depending on that. If a Let's say if uh, MicroLots um, backtest had $50, $50 of drawdown and I wanted to have 20% on a 1,000 um, deposit, then I would use um, like four MicroLots um, um, as the lot size. For example, one factor is that um, the, um, uh, for example, the PIP value uh, of each currency pair is uh, slightly different or not even slightly different on some pairs. Um, like if you have um, Aussie pairs, they are quite different to Euro pairs, for example. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, I could also see a reason why you should, for example, not trade the same lot size on every pair. But it's really, uh, really, really needs a detailed dis discussion on discussion on, um, for example, how large the stop loss is and. Um, how the backtested drawdown was. And there are many things you have to consider and it's not always clear 
for example, um, I that you would always use this certain um, amount for the whisk you want to take. Mm -hmm. For example, I often get the request that uh, someone wants to use um, a percentage risk, mm -hmm. like 1% per trade. Um, I think this is often like in tutorials for manual trading, and it's often used as an example. And I think for manual trading, it really makes sense because it means that like you have an idea mm -hmm. and you want the, this idea to have a maximum risk of 1%. And if the, um, so that you have a maximum um, like loss. And um, since every trade has a certain idea, I think it makes sense to then separate it like this. But if you have, for example, have an automatic strategy, it can get complicated. Mm -hmm. For example, let's, let's imagine we have two strategies. One has a 90 pip stop loss and the other has a 10% stop loss. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to use the always 1% risk, you would trade the 10% um, um, stop loss um, strategy with nine times the volume that you would trade the other strategy. Mm -hmm. But if you now imagine that you have uh, two backtests and both strategies actually have a very similar return to a drawdown um, ratio, mm -hmm. then that would mean that um, in your life portfolio, 90% of the profit comes from this one strategy and only 10% from the other strategy. So you basically give up diversi diversification completely. Mm -hmm. So in that in case, I would argue that it's better, better to keep the lot size the same between both strategies. How do you conduct your back tests generally to get a better overview of how much risk you're actually taking when going to market with that strategy? I usually use a fixed um, lot size on the back test because then you can use the dollar amount as um, like absolute value. For example, um, as I said before, like if you have a strategy which has like fifty dollars drawdown for zero for a micro lot, then you can scale this up to any value you want. Because the problem is, if you use um, um, increasing lot size in the back test, um, this then you can use the percentage drawdown as a like risk estimator. But the problem is as soon as you have more multiple pairs, it doesn't make sense anymore because yeah. you can't combine backtests with, with multiple pairs, at least not on MT4. I mean, there are other um, platforms which could maybe do that. Um, but on MT4, it's best if you have a fixed lot size because then you can just add up all the, or you can combine the backtests and then have a combined a drawdown in dollar terms. And I think that's the best way to do it. And how do you go about tackling each of these problems? So the problem of uh, the trading platform having a limitation that prevents you from uh, seeing the overall impact across all your assets. So for instance, in MetaTrader 4 has this limitation in that it only allows you to backtest on a per asset basis. And if you're trading a multi-strategy portfolio, a multi-asset portfolio, then um, then you quickly run into issues of ascertaining how risk varies across the different assets in your portfolio. So how do you address this problem? What do you do? And do you change platform? Do you, uh, what do you do? First, I would use, um, I think it's called Quant Analyzer. Quant Analyzer, Quant analyzer yes. Can combine back tests. Mm -hmm. So you already get a much better overview and then how the portfolio is um, performing and just so people are clear uh quant analyzer is a tool that is part of the strategy quant suite of tools yes but it's uh, free i think for the base, most basic usage i usually have own python scripts which then um, go through the back tests um, um, 
files and to check at which point I had how many how many orders and also check if it was, for example, prof more profitable to reduce the number of total trades to maybe two or three. Mm -hmm. I think Quant Analyzer also can do something like um, max one trade per day, but I'm not sure about the settings. I'm, I'm not sure if it can really limit the number of um, um, trades at the same time. I'm not too familiar with that. Okay, so, uh, so what I gather is that Uh, you'll use Quant Analyzer for combining backtests that you've done individually in MetaTrader 4. So for instance, if you have a five-asset portfolio or a seven-asset portfolio of all the, the major currency pairs, for instance, then you'll conduct your backtest in MetaTrader 4 on each of them. Then you'll take the uh, backtest files, load them into Quant Analyzer and do a portfolio combination that it allows you to do. I mean, I'm also not sure if I should like mention other platforms. Which no, no, that's fine. That's absolutely um, fine. Like we, we, um, they're really good chaps. They've always been very keen to to help the trading community. So if we make mention yeah. of them, that's uh, that's a good thing. And uh, if you're listening, hats off to you guys. <laughs> and uh, I mean, maybe you'll come on here too one day, and we can we can talk. Another platform where you can actually do um, like multi-pair backtests is JForex. But the mm -hmm. problem with that is that it's really slow, at least, in, I mean, in my experience, it takes so long to do a pair backtest with 15 pair that it's actually faster if you do 15 single backtests in MetaTrader. So All right. I'm not sure okay. if I would... Um, so on that note of risk, how you go about ascertaining how much risk you're taking when going to market, you mentioned that you look at the historical drawdown of um, whatever backtest you've conducted over whatever length of time. You used an example where you conducted a 20-year backtest. Um, what conclusions do you draw from the drawdown you see? So let's imagine that you have a strategy you've backtested over the last 20 years, and let's say in 2007 or 2008, it, went, uh, it had this period of really aggressive drawdown over a very short period of time. How does that influence your decisions going forward? You're sitting here in 2021. Let's imagine you do this exercise now. You uh, are in the process of confirming whether a trading strategy is worth taking live or not, and you've seen this drawdown happen. How does that influence your your risk appetite going forward? I mean, first, um, for example, if I want to judge Like if one optimization is better than another, I would always use the return to drawdown ratio as the, as the most important um, uh, aspect to look at. And yeah, then I would calculate the lot size or the expected profit also from the um, based on the maximum drawdown that I would, would want to have in the future. Mm -hmm. okay. Of course, you can always always um, argue that, for example. Um, um, one strategy of mine has had the maximum drawdown at in the financial crisis, uh, 2007 and 2008. Mm -hmm. And back then, the spreads were much larger than they are now. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, it, it, there might be factors which are not um, the same anymore. So some people also prefer to just take the um, backdoor drawdown from 2010 on. But I prefer to like estimate it more conservatively and um, use the um, maximum drawdown of the full duration. And another point is actually also the backtest um, data quality, mm -hmm. especially if you use some Lucas copy data. It's not that great before 2011. Mm -hmm. So um, I can see uh, like the point of not using data before, but uh, I would still try to, uh, I would still want to see how the, how the strategy performed before mm -hmm. this time. I suppose it would also determine. Uh, it will also depend on uh, the sensitivity of the strategy to 
price variation, right? So if it's a strategy sure. that focuses too much on um, small increments in prices uh, or decrements, depending on the, the direction of your trades, that would probably have, there would be larger impact if the spreads were wider in a certain period uh, versus others. Whereas if you have more of a position trading strategy whereby you're, you're taking up longer positions and uh, over larger price uh, differentials, then um, spread variation would not be uh, would not have as much of an impact as it would yeah, on sure. a price sensitive strategy. You can even like try to include um, this. I mean, what I did, for example, it was that I modified the backtest data uh, so that it would have a more even spread distribution. Mm -hmm. But you have to be very careful with with that yeah. because um, first, you do, it could also be that during the times where it had larger spread. Uh, for example, the movement price movement was, was larger. So if you then um, artificially reduce the spread, it would um, um, create maybe um, uh, unrealistic movements. And also you have to do it symmetrically. For mm -hmm. example, if you just have a spread multiplier in um, thick data suite, it will just use the bid price and then um, add um, the certain um, the spread with a certain spec spread factor to mm -hmm. it which would mean that um, it's actually very unrealistic that because then the ask price might have, if you have a spread widening, the ask mm -hmm. price might jump down mm -hmm. and um, this could lead to trades with, which never happened in real, uh, real trading. So we have to be very careful. Yeah, and it's something that affects people with um, the overall uh, visual inspection part of the exercise. Taking account of these things before conducting back tests actually results in more realistic outcomes and helps us avoid things such as trying to force our way into the the most appealing looking equity curve possible, which is something that affects affects traders early on in their journey when uh, early on in our journeys we we saw that that had uh, quite an impact on us the better the the visual appeal of an equity curve uh, the more it would uh, result in us attempting to take it to market and things like that which are things that we yeah, now sure. in hindsight <laughs> would like yeah. to it, to avoid I, I mean i think it's also very important to not just use the the absolute best optimization that you can find to estimate the risk for example mm -hmm. what i would do is that i would um, uh, vary, um, vary the input parameters, maybe plus minus 10%. Mm -hmm. And then I would check what the drawdown was. And um, that's then much more realistically the, realistic than just taking the best out of maybe thousands um, optimizations. Mm -hmm. And speaking of optimizations, have you ever conducted or what's your approach to uh, optimizing a trading strategy uh, with risk in mind? What have been, uh, A, your experiences with this, your stance on optimization in terms of risk, uh, and also things you've seen uh, from your clients over time? It'd be great to, great to share those. I mean, one reason why I do optimizations is also just um, because, um, I mean, if you publish a new version and the backtest is worse than the old version, then you get a lot of questions like, oh, what, what have you done? Like, even if you add something that makes sense, if then the backtest is worse, then people mm -hmm. start uh, questioning it. And um, and also, I mean, usually I would judge if something makes sense by um, doing the backtest. And if the mm -hmm. backtest is really worse, then I would probably not add at something and when but, you say um, worse um define worse first i would do you look at some um, return to drawdown ratio mm -hmm. 
And, but then also on the expectancy and the profit factor, because mm -hmm. if they are too low, then it's and probably uh, will have a, a worse life performance. Mm -hmm. Or instead, you could also add the slippage to the backtest and then just look at the return to drawdown ratio, I think. Right. And um, so we've talked about how historical drawdown affects your future choices, your decision making around what sort of risk to take on um, a trading strategy. Now, if I'm correct, you have three trading strategies uh, listed as Darwin assets on the Darwin exchange. One of the things that's super critical for the risk engine to modulate your trading strategy is maintaining a consistent risk profile. That doesn't necessarily mean exactly the same risk profile, but it means that there needs to be consistency in the risk profile of your trading strategy or portfolio of trading strategies. How do you go about uh, maintaining that so that your risk stability in the eyes of the risk engine at DarwinX um, stays uh, favorable for the risk engine? Uh, basically, I would just keep the um, balance at a um, similar um, size and um, uh, uh, use a fixed lot size. So uh, if I had profit, I would withdraw the, the profit and have the same lot size. Well, I would just increase the lot size, more or less a fixed maximum leverage, like a mm -hmm. leverage of 10 or 15 maybe. Um, and um, yeah, I let the risk engine do the rest. And um, from your perspective, having gone through providing three Darwins, if I'm correct so far, you have three, yes. three of your Darwins. I mean, two listed. of them are using the same strategy, but mm -hmm. one um, has uh, is, um, uses a selection of the best pairs judging by the, by the back tests. Because I'm always looking at the worst case scenario, I'm also looking at what could happen, for example, in a flash crash and... Theoretically, if you are, for example, um, classified as professional, you mm -hmm. could also go negative in the balance. Uh -huh. And I really don't want to have a case where I'm negative in the balance. So mm -hmm. I'm always classified as, as retail trader. And mm -hmm. then um, like the maximum leverage that I use is one to 30. Um, mm -hmm. And on public accounts, I usually use uh, even less um, because based on the drawdown, it's usually more around 10 to 20 leverage um, that I think um, uh, makes sense if you want to have a maximum of 20 or 30 percent drawdown mm -hmm. uh, in my uh, in the case of my strategies of course that could be different sure the strategy and this maximum uh, leverage threshold is it uh, affected by other factors such as for instance the assets in your portfolio any any attributes of the price movement and the assets in your portfolio for instance volatility or other factors I mean, the stop loss for each pair is um, also depends on the volatility of the pair. But um, so the risk per trade depends on it. But I wouldn't say that the total leverage depends on it. Usually, I have just a fixed number of trades. For example, the night scalper is only allowed to open up to three um, trades. And then it's unclear what the maximum leverage could be. Of course, it also depends on the pair. Like if you are filled and um, in, in the pound, uh, the cable, um, and then it uh, uses more leverage than if you are filled in uh, um, another pair, for example. Could you share um, things you've observed in the trader populace generally? Because I, I assume you've been doing this for quite a long time and hence been able to see a lot of different personalities with yeah. uh, their various different approaches to, to trading. So what are some of the key trends you've observed 
in people and their approach to risk? Uh, some people start, um, I mean, they ask something like, uh, what lot size do I need to make 10% per month? And mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, again, I think the wrong question because, yeah, uh, I mean, that means that you so. have a drawdown risk of maybe 500% uh, or something like mm -hmm. this. And um, so, like, you have to learn realistic expectations, like 10% um, per month is just not realistic. I mean, uh, even if you... Um, uh, risk uh, your complete deposit, it's uh, very un unrealistic. I had customers who said they have a maximum of maybe $500 to trade with. And um, I mean, if you want to make any meaningful amount uh, with uh, that kind of deposit, then you have to use a very high risk. So um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a pity that you really uh, need a uh, given uh, uh, like a, some kind of start deposit to really, um, um, of course, if you can attract um, Investor capital, then that's something different. You can even trade with 500 euro on Davinix and still have uh, like a million in investor capital. Sure. You know, probably most people would still look at the, um, the the amount that the trader is risking and mm -hmm. um, maybe decide also upon that, um, which um, how much to invest. In my opinion, you really have to see it as an investment of free opportunity and not as an in income opportunity. Sure. Like it's very un unrealistic to have uh, income, except if you really have a great strategy or if you're setting EAs or if you have, um, yeah, I don't know, a, a very high win rate and um, can attract a lot of capital. You've hit on a very, very nice point. Thank you for bringing that up. Taking your trading activity um, investing in Darwin's or what have you, we mustn't look at it in, in the terms that you just mentioned, income. It should be looked at as an investment with an associated risk. And that is, I think, where uh, a lot of the beginner, even some of the intermediate crowd tends to experience difficulty. <laughs> trading as a profession or trading as a hobby or trading as a pursuit that you'd like to scale on the side involves risk. Um, so in conclusion, what are four or five things, don't have to be four or five, that you can, that you'd advise such people in terms of risk and their approach to leverage, like, hey, don't do this, do this. What would those uh, things be based on your own experience, as well as that of third parties you've encountered so far? I mean, first, I would um, like make sure that you don't have too high expectations. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, even I would maybe judge by a stock market, which makes um, maybe at uh, between, I don't know, 5 and 10% per year. Mm -hmm. And um, even 20% per year for a strategy is really good, uh, mm -hmm. if it's scalable, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then I would start with a very, very small lot size. If you're not 100% sure that you really want to um, trade the strategy, I mean, even if you're buying an EA, I would always test one or two months with a minimum lot size. Um, so that you can judge uh, by live performance and not just by back tests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would try to read as much as possible for about um, uh, the markets in general and uh, how about back testing about um, mm -hmm. algorithmic trading and um, try to learn um, something. To improve, okay. improve our understanding, improve your yeah. understanding of... Uh, of risk in general, uh, as well as ways you can approach trading strategy development that allow you to make more uh, sensible choices regarding risk rather than uh, one or the other, one extreme or the other, both of which are fraught with their issues. So I agree yeah. with what you said. Understand 
to enable yourself to to make more uh, calculated decisions and uh, research more about ways you can do that rather than using one or two factors or a particular backtest and uh, taking it forward. On the subject of backtests, do you do any additional robustness checks on top of a backtest? So having one backtest is all well and good, but do you, do you conduct any kind of robustness analysis on these backtests that also inform your risk-taking decisions? Ooh, um, I mean, what you could do is uh, like um, Monte Carlo simulations, mm-hmm. but usually I actually don't do that, but it uh, would be a good thing to... Um, uh, I think the main problem is really the optimization because, um, I mean, if I use my highly optimized um, uh, results and then I do a Monte Carlo simulation, they would really look amazing. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really make... Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really <laughs> give additional information. But um, therefore, I think the most important thing is to also use like not so much optimized backtest to uh, estimate the drawdown. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And one common mistake which I often just thought of is also that um, uh, many customers um, want to scale um, as much as possible to get better, higher rebates. I mean, you can get rebates on some uh, websites for your trading volume, mm-hmm. but it's really... I mean, it just means that your your commission is like one dollar less, and it's really not something you should um, like aim at to, to have a higher rebate because it's. Um, I mean, either the strategy works, then it makes profit, or it doesn't, then the rebate won't won't help you much anyway. Yeah, because a better alternative would simply be to maintain a consistent risk profile. Yes. Trade trade at Darwin X with this consistent risk profile. And regardless of whether you end up attracting third-party capital or not, you can still participate in the monthly prop allocation at DarwinX, the Darwinia, yeah. uh, where which rewards sensible trading, which is which is built exclusively for rewarding responsible decision making that results in consistent performance over the medium term or longer, right? Not for short, quick, uh, quick wins. So there is that angle as well. If you're, for instance, conducting this type of trading that uh, Roman just mentioned, whereby you're simply scaling for with the intention of getting rebates, there is a much, much better alternative to that if you have a decent trading strategy that is capable of generating consistent performance with consistent risk. And that is Darwinia. Um, sure. And usually monthly. also the broker who offer large rebates have a very high base commission anyway. So if you Correct. charge like seven or eight dollars and then you can give one or two dollars as rebate. Sure. But, uh, yeah, you can might as well just uh, charge five or six dollars. Precisely. Well, good conversation. This was this was uh, a mix of, of thoughts around risk taking, approach to calculating what kind of risk to take in future, any robustness testing we can do on top of additional back tests to further inform our decisions in terms of risk. We talked about how different traders approach the subject differently, while some would like to scale with the intention of um, simply increasing their rebates. There are better alternatives to that, much safer alternatives to that, um, <laughs> which is simply to just trade consistently. Don't assume insane levels of risk and let investor capital do provide you the leverage you need rather than go assuming that much leverage on your own. And prior to attracting third-party capital, you can, of course, participate in, in the DarwinX monthly prop allocation, Darwinia, which will reward you for taking on 
sensible risk versus doing anything else that might reduce your outcomes for survival in the future. So over leveraging is never going to be a sensible decision because statistically it will reduce your odds of surviving in the market. Sure. Great summary. <laughs> All right. Nice one. Thank you, Roman. Catch you again soon uh, on our on the next subject of our discussion, which is um, creating the necessary architecture to do all of what we just talked about. Okay, so that That'd will be involve area that you yeah. area that you enjoy a lot more than talking about the the fundamentals, <laughs> which is the actual development side. What are the tools people need, both discretionary and algorithmic, by the way, not uh, not just one side or the other. And we'll talk a bit about how. If you are a discretionary trader, you can introduce automation into your uh, efforts without necessarily being uh, completely algorithmic. And for those who are algorithmic traders, we'll talk about things you can do in order to add more robustness to your trading strategy generation process. And uh, with a specific, with a particular focus on uh, how you can inform your decisions on risk-taking better by incorporating certain practices that will shed more light on in our next discussion, which won't be just a podcast. It'll be a mix of a podcast and a screencast. Information that will benefit both discretionary and algorithmic traders, but for those who are purely algorithmic, we will also be showing code, talking about various ways of arriving at that code and uh, what they can what they can do with it in their own trading strategy development process so stay tuned for that one look forward to having that chat with you in the future roman yeah me too see you All next right. time take care cheers bye you too. bye